Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to air your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics and Right, coming from the studios of KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, your community radio station. We have a great program for you today. Texas Representative Crockett gives an update on the voter suppression fight. Dr. Cedric Dark details our COVID fiasco and Dr. Steve Mintz on critical race theory. Texas State Representative Jasmine Crockett has been one of the most visible and articulate legislators fighting the GOP attack on Texas voters. She has a message for Democrats that may be softening. It is with trepidation that I read the article in the Houston Chronicle uh, titled Slow Rolling Hunt for Absent Texas Democrats Begins with Door Knock. It read as if the Democratic heroes like Representative Jasmine Crockett and others fighting for Texans' right to vote, were some sort of criminals. Are you kidding me? Cedric Dork is an ER doctor in the Medical Center in Houston, Texas. He's a writer. He's an influencer. He discusses the COVID emergency, myths and solutions. America is going through the unnecessary fourth wave in this COVID pandemic. I wanted to speak to someone on the front lines. Emergency room Dr. Cedric Dark fit the bill. He works in the Houston Medical Center and has seen seen the COVID carnage firsthand. Uh, You've probably seen Cedric all over MSNBC and CNN as he continued to chronicle what's going on with this pandemic that is really getting out of hand. Dr. Stephen Mintz is here to discuss the fall controversy surrounding critical race theory. Mintz leaned into the subject with solid and thoughtful commentary. Known as the ethics sage to many with a reputation as an expert in ethics, Dr. Stephen Mintz is a professor emeritus from Cal Poly State University in San Luis Obispo. Anyway, folks, you know that we are in fun drive mode. You're still getting a full show, three great interviews but we need your support. Please go ahead and listen to these offers Politics Done Rights providing right now, and please be a part of it. Give us whatever you can, but if you can, go with our offers as well. Please consider it. What am I offering? Three books. As I see it, Class Warfare, The Only Resort to Right-Wing Doom for a contribution of $120. It's worth it. How to Talk to Your Right-Wing Relatives, Friends, and Neighbors, a Contribution, $120. How to Make America Utopia, Take Away the Economy from Those Who Rigged It, that's a pledge of $120. You can get any two of those books for a combined pledge of $200 or any three books 
for $250. So again, you get a break each time. Look, you know, we're trying to give you a little something for helping this station stay on air. So please consider uh, getting uh, one of or either one, two or three book offers that I just mentioned there. And do remember that you don't have to come up with all of this all at once if you don't want to. Just, you know, go ahead and, and, and talk to the person. Anyhow, please consider offer. Uh, we also, of course, you can become a member of the station with a $40 membership. So please remember to just give us a call and be a part of 713-526-5738. Again, that number is 713-526-5738 or go to kpft.org. Again, that is kpft.org. I have some thank yous here. I want to thank Scott Murray from Houston, Texas for that wonderful contribution. I also want to thank Jose Escobar. From Huffman, Texas, thank you so kindly for your support. And, of course, there is also Eric Gerdrum from Spring, Texas. Thank you so kindly for your kind support. And, as well, Alvaro Rodriguez, thank you so kindly from Houston, Texas. And James Matujek from Houston, Texas, thank you so kindly for your contribution. Folks, you can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right or on YouTube live at politics slash YouTube. Again, that is politics slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willies at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. Before we get started, please remember to keep your community radio station, KPFT, in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends to tune into 90.1 FM Houston or listen at kpft.org. Likewise, keep our 100,000-watt station that covers the entire Southeast Texas on air and help us get the backup generator by donating what you can afford at our website, kpft.org or call 713-526-5738. Again, please don't forget to get one or all of our books. As I see it, Class Warfare, The Only Resort to Right-Wing Doom for $120. It's worth it. How to Talk to Your Right-Wing Relatives, Friends, and Neighbors for $120. How to Make America Utopia, Take Away the Economy from Those Who Rigged It. That's $120. Get any two for $200. Get any three for $250. Folks, we need your support to keep this station online. This is our pledge drive. This is, a, this is the pitching I'm doing. You're going to our three interviews now. And afterwards, we'll close this baby down. Thank you so kindly. But anyhow, let's get busy. Today, we again have Representative Jasmine Crockett. Uh, she is the elected Texas representative for House District 100. She is a civil rights attorney and a progressive fighter for the criminal justice system. She's out there. I still, I believe you're still in Washington. Welcome aboard uh, uh, Politics Done Right, Representative. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for what you're doing. It seems to me like some folks forgot uh, who they work for and they're, well, let's go directly into that. I'm going to can my questions for a minute and ask you uh, about uh, those representatives that went back to Texas. Tell me about what that's going to mean. Uh, I have no idea what it means, considering the fact that um, bills are still not moving. So I'm not really sure what the point was. There's lots of rumors, obviously, when we look at 
a place like El Paso. El Paso is losing one of their seats. And so three of the five members from that delegation went back. There are rumors that there are all kinds of negotiations going on, um, maybe even as it relates to redistricting. I don't really know. Um, I've not been a part of any negotiations, obviously, and I've not spoken with the members that are on the floor. So I can't really understand um, why they went back or what they thought they would get by going back or, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I literally have no idea as to why they went back. I just know that we have every single reason to stay out. Um, I know that we broke quorum because of the voting bill and we still are looking for that legislation. We know that the House is going to come back a little bit early. They're going to come back, I believe, on the 23rd or the 26th. I can't remember which date. Um, and they're going to get started and try to get uh, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act uh, finally together so that they can vote on it. What's what's significant about that is if we pass legislation in Texas, then that doesn't provide us any protection under John Lewis because um, they're un, well, let me say it this way. It doesn't currently unless they add a look back provision Retractive. because it's, it's all about um, preclearance. Right. So if you pass the bill before the law exists, then it doesn't help you. Um, HR one, we would still have some help if that were to go into place, but we wouldn't have with John Lewis. And so we know that the house is coming back a little bit early to work on that. Uh, it's our understanding that the Senate may do the same if the house gets somewhere on the John Lewis voting rights act. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. So right now with the governor being wrong about masking with him being wrong about voting with him being wrong on bail with him being wrong on everything that he put on his agenda, I just don't see the reason in going back. We know that we don't have the numbers. We know that Republicans are just lockstep soldiers for the governor. They don't govern and do things because they make sense. They do them because the governor has ordered that they be done. Um, so we know that we can't stop any of this legislation. Now, Representative, it is it is clear that uh you, I, I think they, they still don't have quorum because I don't think enough of you came back to Texas. Am I correct there still? Or are they just high? Because, I mean, it, it, this morning's Chronicle says that uh, you're, how, that the, the Speaker of the House is out there in Texas trying to round you up. He's going to each one of your districts <laughs> to try to find you. Are they in the district or are they mostly at the, uh, still out there camped out in D.C.? Everyone is spread all over. Um, you know, we said we would stay in D.C. so long as um, Congress was in. Congress has taken recess. Um, and so there's no point in actually being in the city. Uh, there are members that are still in D.C. There are members that are um, in other states. There are members that are in other portions of the state of Texas. Um, so, you know, members are kind of spread out. Um, it would be very difficult to kind of round us up. Right now, we believe that they most likely will target five members, whatever members they think would be easiest to round up and gather because they only need five for a quorum. And like I said, they just want our bodies. They don't want anything else. They just want us there so that they can ram this legislation through. And right now, time is not on their side because the next big deal is redistricting. And you can't do these 50 million other random things plus redistricting. And they really want redistricting. I mean, how else can you get reelected in a purple district um, when you pass things such as permitless carry this session, right? So if you're a Republican that only won by 200 votes, which that did happen 
this last legislative cycle, um, then yeah, you need you need to get new lines. You need to make sure that those lines are more and more red. And so we are expecting them to be very excited about getting to the gerrymandering process. Now you understand the gerrymandering press process quite well, and I, I I know math pretty darn good. I would expect. Now here's my concern, or not my concern. Here's what I don't understand: how it's going to be done. We're going to gain two more seats. Most of the <laughs> the increase in population here came from uh, people of color. Uh, there is there are just so many. Uh, there's just so much spreading that you can do where popular where gerrymandering just doesn't work. I looked at the numbers. And I don't see any security other than packing, uh, packing Republican areas uh, in a certain percentage now to give uh, to actually get more Republican seats. I don't see it. And I think uh, one of the there was a report that was out a few days ago that said uh, Texas is not going to be able to redistrict as Republican as one may believe. Do you concur with that or not? No. I don't. I mean, (laughs) they don't care. I mean, like they are lawless. They are the definition of lawless. Right. I mean, the fact that our governor is killing children and you think that they care about being fair on lines. Come on now. Like, like, let's let's be honest about it. Like what they will do is and 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 so that your listeners understand, um, 95 percent of our growth in the last decade has been because of people of color, period. So. For anybody that thinks in a logical way, that means that those two seats, because we grew, which is how we were able to get two more congressional seats, that those two seats would be drawn in a way that kind of is reflective of our growth. Right. So that means it probably would be people of color or at least districts that would represent people of color. But what they like to do here in Texas is do things that allow people like Chip Roy to become a a congressman out of Austin, right? Because they will slice that thing up. So let's say Austin, I don't know how many congressmen are currently in Austin, right? But instead of drawing a fair line, what they would do is say, well, we'll give you one fourth of the pie of Austin because we got to divide out their voices and their votes. And let's spread this sucker all the way to South Texas. (laughs) Like they will make the the oddest shapes um, just to uh, get the power. Everything with Republicans is about a power grab. When you look at the House, when you look at the Senate, they are not reflective of what our state looks like. We are a majority minority state. And when you look at the people that are, quote unquote, trying to round us up, which there's 83 Republicans in the House, you look at them, you find one black person and he's about to be gone. You find, uh, I think, one Latino. That's it. Everyone else is white. So let's say that's 81 white folk to, uh, you know, what we have on the Democratic side, which is a lot more diversity. And you're, you're looking at this saying, is this what Texas is? It's not. And they keep saying, well, we were put in power. No, you weren't. You stole the power and you're continuing to try to steal the power. That's what that is. No. It's not that the majority of people really want a job. Representative, and I think that is the importance of what you're doing. Because there is a point after you reach a certain number that gerrymandering requires voter suppression to succeed. Yep. In other words, and and that's what I'm trying. That's the reason I brought up that number. In other words, they can try to make the district as best as they can. 
But the only thing that can make these districts red enough is if you fail at what you are trying to do to ensure that everybody has equal access to the ballot. Your your your, your thoughts on that? Oh, no. I mean, it's absolutely a one-two punch. <laughs> yes. This is why the governor had to call this. I mean, the governor has been an elected official in the state of Texas for years. I mean, statewide elected official, right? The governor is in his second term. He's seeking a third term until he runs for president. Obviously, Um, he has sat on the Supreme Court. He has been our attorney general. The voting laws have been fine for him all this time. And all of a sudden something happened. No, nothing happened except for we continue to grow and trend in a way that doesn't really fit. The demographics don't favor him. That's not to say that all minorities vote Democratic. But goodness gracious, the Republicans don't really give people of color, very many choices. I mean, they continuously side with white supremacists. That kind of cuts out most people of color who give a darn about who they are and have some pride in who they are. They say, never mind. I don't want to associate with that because at the end of the day, policies are policies. But for anyone to stand by and support white supremacists and their agenda, that's where I got to cut this off. It's not about Um, where we are from a financial policy standpoint. It becomes bigger than that. And so they instead antagonize and go after people of color, even with our warrants. What we saw was one of our white colleagues, a Republican, putting out wanted uh, photos that he made up. And the next thing you know, there's a low security um, concern about us. And I say low, we get security threat uh, information from DPS I don't know how high or how low it is, but, you know, they rank it. And it's all about this proud boy type, the insurrectionist type. And we saw that they put bounties out for some of us. Go round them up. This is what you support by supporting Republicans. I mean, there is just a lack of they are morally inept at this point. They are morally bankrupt. And so some things you just have to say, hold the line. And when it comes to voting rights and the rest of the white supremacy agenda that exists right now in the Texas House, I don't understand why we as Democrats would not want to hold the line, especially since we have the people of color on our side, which means that we are representing people of color. Well, uh, in closing, let me just say that um, we have a new crop of Democrats coming up. You represent them. And this is what uh, most of us been longing for in our politicians, the ones that are really going to stand, stand up on moral issues, stand up on real issues. So thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. And please keep up doing what you're doing and know that you're, you have a home here. <laughs> thank you so much. Have a good one. We are here with Dr. Cedric Dark. Dr. Cedric Dark is an ER doctor a writer and influencer at the Medical Center in Houston, Texas. One of his mottos is heading or healing the sick through medicine and advocacy. Dr. Cedric Dark, welcome to Politics Done Right. How are you doing? I am doing just fine. Look, um, I, I want to start really uh, right from the beginning. Could we have mitigated this uh, pandemic in the United States if we had just masked up even before the vaccine? You know, yeah, that was one of the big mistakes early on last year when, uh, you know, right here in Houston, 
know, we had a mask mandate that was in effect for a while and then it kind of got obliterated for about 67 days or so um, before it was clarified that, you know, businesses could still do mask mandates, just the mask mandates couldn't really apply to individuals. Um, and, you know, that's why we wound up in having that first wave last summer. And now I think it's, it's just mostly this concept that people don't want to go around wearing masks no matter what. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, I was, you know, went out to a restaurant last night, the waiters like leaning over, leaning over us, um, like everybody at our table was vaccinated, but the waiter's not vaccinated, not even wearing a mask and had to go to the, the, uh, manager and be like, can you get this person a mask? Cause they don't need to be waiting on us in that situation. It's, you know, you're in customer service business. We're in the middle of a pandemic, that sort of thing. And I mean, I understand people, you know, might want to do normal things, right? Like go eat somewhere. Um, and it's like, you just got to do simple stuff really. Yeah, that is completely sad. Um, Now, we're beyond that now. We have vaccinations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera now. But we have this new, uh, first of all, of the people that are coming into your emergency room, uh, are you having mostly vaccinated, unvaccinated? What are you seeing? No, pretty much, I would say almost all the people that I see are unvaccinated. Um, Some of the numbers that I've seen out of Alabama is like nine out of ten. Um, and, and it kind of depends on where you are. So like the people, my friends that are in the Northeast, you know, Massachusetts, New York, they see a lot more percentage wise of vaccinated people having breakthrough infections, but that's because their percentage of vaccinated population is much higher. So you're expecting to see that kind of thing. Like if hundred percent of everybody were vaccinated, then hundred percent of the cases would be vaccinated breakthrough cases. Right. If you if you look at the math that way, right. whereas if you have zero percent of the people vaccinated, then every single case would be an unvaccinated case. Um, you know, we're closer to zero than we are to to, uh, you know, being perfectly vaccinated in, in our society at this point down here in Texas. And so it makes a lot of sense that we're seeing this remaining a pandemic of the unvaccinated at this point. Now, look, I hate to bring up people like Grogan and all people that are given sort of misleading information here. But I think this one is very important. Uh, Grogan went on his show recently and said, uh, you know, right now we've been telling Americans that the unvax- the problem that we have in the country right now is the unvaccinated. Well, he has taken a report from somewhere to claim that because uh, vaccinated people uh, can have the same amount of the new uh, predominant uh, variant of the virus, the Delta variant, because they can have that in their system and can transmit it, that they may actually be more dangerous than the unvaccinated because they're taking less precaution. And because they are vaccinated with the virus, it has a larger uh, probability of mutation. Could you dispel that or give uh, or explain that better for the audience? I think it just needs a little bit more context, right? So if you're talking about vaccinated people are being less cautious, a couple of weeks ago, prior to Delta variant being a big concern, you know, the CDC guidance was that if you were vaccinated, you could go out and you didn't necessarily have to have a mask on. Um, and so that's probably where that idea is being twisted. However, in reality, you know, I find that the people that are actually getting vaccinated are also more cautious in general and therefore are more likely to wear masks in general 
it's not like there's a bunch of unvaccinated people that are wearing masks as an alternative. You know, maybe there are some. And and quite frankly, if you choose to go unvaccinated, the least you could do is wear a mask, you know, to protect yourself, your family and the people around you. So, you know, I'm not going to necessarily try to get into the mythology from all the COVID deniers and COVID, uh, you know, minimizers out there. But let's just talk about real things about what you can do as an individual to minimize your own risk. Now, what is the state of your emergency room right now? I know you, you're in one of the major emergency centers here in Houston. Yeah. I, you know, I specifically can't talk about what it's like in my emergency room, but mm-hmm. I can tell you about what it's like overall. Now, for those of you that may not be familiar, the southeast region of Texas has this organization called SETRAC, which keeps track of all the hospitals um, in nine counties, including Harris County and the surrounding areas. It covers about 6.6 million people, okay? As of a couple of days ago, there were 56 ICU beds for all of those people in the entire region, okay, for 6.6 million people. And that's whether you're in a car wreck, whether you're having a heart attack, whether you're having a stroke, not just if you're having COVID. Uh, and so we're, we're at a crisis point right now. And hospitals in general are full. Um, if you show up, there's going to be a long wait. If you're having an emergency, still come into the emergency room. You know, we, we are there to help triage people and figure out if you're having a heart attack, you're going to get treated fast, but it may take a while for you to maneuver through the system. If you need more specialized care, if you're, if you show up at the hospital that doesn't have the services that you need, that sort of thing. If you show up for your ankle sprain, you might be sitting there for eight, 10, 12, hours, that sort of thing to be seen. Um, but if you're having something serious, you think it's life-threatening, still come in. We're able to sort through people. And the next person that comes back is going to be the sickest person. You know. But if you, if you are in ER and you have to wait, you need to be patient with us because it's, it's not necessarily our fault. It's that there's a blockage behind us and, and people can't go upstairs to rooms. Therefore, people can't come back into the ER. So we're actually seeing people as many as we can, like out front in the waiting area. As, as much as possible. Now, given that a lot of this is causal because of the unvaccinated, there have been serious people stating that at this point in time, there there's a particular person that came on and actually a video that went viral that said, look, my wife had cancer. She couldn't get any treatment because the hospitals are filled. Uh, and she was prioritized out of getting her treatment. Isn't it time for those who have not received vaccines to be prioritized down? Is there some way to do that and advertise that that's going to be done? Because again, uh, the people that decide or chose not to be vaccinated, they're putting the lives of other responsible people at risk. Sure they are, but you know, so do people that decide to drink and drive. And so do people that decide to smoke cigarettes and we don't all of a sudden stop treating them in the medical profession. Our job is to take care of the person that's in front of us and to not judge them for the choices that they make. Now, would I want every single person to choose not to smoke and to, you know, be sober when they're driving and to get a COVID vaccine and to wear a mask? Of course I would, but I'm not going to deny someone treatment for choices that they've made. Okay. The the thing that you're talking about is completely true though. What, what people are you know, talking about like scheduled surgeries, you know, things that people need to get done can't get done right now because we're near capacity. And in some places, certain places might be over capacity. 
And because of that, if you have a scheduled surgery, that's going to get bumped to a later time when we're hopefully through this wave and our healthcare system isn't as stretched as much as it can so that you can get that accommodated. But in the meantime, you're going to have to wait. And so right now we're essentially rationing healthcare based on bed availability. And that's due to people's choices to not get vaccinated and to perpetuate this pandemic. I mean, what you said was very important, doctor. I mean, that was a very important concept for Americans to hear that, wait a minute, there are a lot of other things that humans do that had they not, they would not have presented to the emergency room. That is a very important thought process right there. Now, that said, I'm going to ask the, the sort of the same question in another way. Uh, would we enhance people's or better people's behavior if within our triage system, we had some sort of a ranking based on behavior, not just vaccinated behavior, but just some of those other behaviors you spoke about? Well, I think, you know, the best example of what you're trying to get at, I think at this point is what do we do about people that catch COVID, wind up having severe illness, their lungs essentially fill up with pus you know, like a sponge filled with, you know, a banana pudding. That's yeah. what they look like, right? And then they need a lung transplant. Who do we give the next lung to? Do we give it to that person that decided, I'm not going to wear a mask, I'm not going to get vaccinated, you know, I'm going to enjoy my freedom, and then they wound up catching COVID um, and, and needing a lung transplant? Or are we going to give it to the kid that's got um, cystic fibrosis or another individual that for whatever reason needs a lung, but is otherwise doing what they need to do. That's right now, I think, uh, an area of medical ethics that is being looked at. And, you know, there's some precedent to that. If you, and, and I'm not the perfect person to talk about because I don't do transplant and I don't right. do transplant ethics. But, you know, if someone has been a chronic alcoholic to the point that their liver is completely shot and burned out and they need a liver transplant, they're not necessarily going to be prioritized or one if they're still drinking, right? And so it's the same thing. If someone is not masking and they catch COVID, are we certain that they're going to be able to mask after they get their lung transplant, after they're put on immunosuppressive medications that knock down their immune system and make them even more um, likely to get infectious disease if they're not going to get vaccinated? And I think that you probably will see some decisions at that point in time when it comes to how do we treat the extremely sick in terms of how they wound up there, as opposed to how we treat um, people when they walk in the door, which is what I deal with, those people we're going to treat equally regardless. That, that, ma that makes a lot of sense. Now, where do we go from here? We are in, in a bad spot right now, and we don't exactly know where things are going. As far as you're concerned, right now, there's a Delta variant that the vaccines still seem to work with. We understand from Peru, uh, we have a Lambda variant that is uh, starting to appear in the United States of America as well. We are not sure how effective the vaccines are going to be like this. So there are two questions here. One, is uh, COVID going to behave, let's say, like the common cold, where the mutation is such that really you can't have a long-term vaccine specifically for it? And two, what does that say about our future uh, freedom, if you will, uh, in, in this country going forward now that we've had this novel virus that's really knocked on us? Yeah, I don't really know the answer to that. And I don't think anybody really knows the answer to that. 
So if anyone tells you they do, they're probably lying to you. Um, but what I would say is I worry, and a lot of people worry that COVID is going to become what we call endemic to American society. So it's going to be something like, um, I, I would probably more equate it towards pneumonia than anything else. You know, if, if you've got, um, you know, older parents and, you know, when they turn 60, 65 or so, they get the pneumonia shot to try to prevent pneumonia. Um, I'm assuming COVID is going to be something like that, more or less, where it still occurs. But, you know, do we walk around acting as if it's this thing that everyone's avoiding, you know, five, 10 years from now, maybe not. It might just be, oh, this is a type of pneumonia, a type of infectious organism that causes a pneumonia. That might be the case. I don't know. Maybe we'll get to a point where people are vaccinated. Hopefully the vaccine will provide long-term immunity. Um, and therefore the cases that we do see will be sporadic and amongst maybe either breakthroughs or just the, the small percentage of people that remain unvaccinated. That's the hope. But I, I worry that it's going to be with us for a long time, if not now, forever. Has there been any modeling done to tell uh, what it would be like if all of us simply went unmasked? There probably has been um, no cases. I, I, I'm not familiar with specific data of that um, in terms of what it would look like. But, you know, from some estimates that I've seen prior, like last year, we know for sure that masking reduces the number of cases. Um, and when you reduce cases, you're going to reduce things like hospitalizations, ICU stays and, you know, all the all the downward effects on the healthcare system. So we, we know that actually works because, you know, fortunately slash unfortunately, we had a great natural experiment with this last year with certain right. states implementing mask mandates, certain states not doing it. And with the delay in terms of how long it took some states to get this. So we know that masks actually work to cut these cases down. Um, so for me, like seeing that kind of policy driven data. Um, and then contrasting that with the actual policy decisions that are made is pretty frustrating. Uh, doctor, what would you like to uh, close with telling our audience uh, going forward? If, if, you know, the governors of in the South are not going to implement mask mandates, it's on you to do this yourself for your family. So if someone's coming over to your home, they either need to be vaccinated and wearing a mask um, if you're deciding that you want to go out and eat at a restaurant and get vaccinated, wear a mask. You know, you, you're going to have to control your domain and your bubble and anybody that's coming around you, whether it's your parents or your siblings or your cousins or whatever. If they want to come up inside your house and they don't want to get vaccinated, they can stay outdoors. They can not come around. And, you know, you're just going to have to protect protect yourself more than anything else because you can't necessarily rely on um anybody else to protect you at this point. Dr. Cedric Dart, ER doctor, writer, influencer at the Medical Center in Houston. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Thank you. Americans have been lied to for so long that even the reporters believe the crap. I mean, you remember those phrases like, we fight them over there so we don't have to fight them over here. Those are the things that the military industrial complex uses to force Americans into saying, we're going to subsidize all these private American companies supporting our militaries 
all over these different countries. It's a sham. It's just a profit center for corporations. Well, you know, the question is now, oh my God, now that we're leaving Afghanistan, terrorism is going to come about. And the answer to that question that the press secretary gave today should shut that down completely. I want to be very clear about what our position is. Our position is that we are going to have to deal with the potential threat of terrorism from Afghanistan going forward, just as we have to deal with the potential threat of terrorism in dozens of countries in multiple continents around the world. That is the truth. If you want to have eyes in other countries, it doesn't mean putting a military footprint, entire infrastructure for the defense or the military industrial complex to make a whole lot of money. And it doesn't mean risking the lives of innocent people as those civilian uh, civilian money makers go out there and take advantage of them. What it means is you use intelligence. We have a very special topic to discuss. It's the rage of the country, the false rage, I must add, critical race theory. Well, today, known as the ethics sage to many, with a reputation as an expert in ethics, Dr. Steve Mintz is a professor emeritus from Cal Poly State University in San Luis Obispo. He received an accounting exemplar award from the public interest section of the American Accounting Association in 2015. His blog, Ethics Sage was recognized as number 49 out of 100 top philosophy blogs and one of the top 30 blogs on corporate social responsibility. Steve shares insights into business ethics through his workplace ethics advice blog and special take on ethics in colleges and universities in a blog, Higher Ed Ethics Watch, that begins next month. It's a pleasure to have you on. Dr. Mintz, how are you doing today? Fine. Thank you for having me. Well, I mean, uh, you 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 kind of made a statement in in that thing there that that um what what that talked about the social responsibility of corporations against Ms. Milton Friedman will not be happy with you. Uh, anyhow. <laughs> Anyhow, let, I can't worry about Milton. <laughs> well, I, I just thought I might bring him up because you know his his great essays in the early yes. earlier part of the twentieth century. What he had to say about the social responsibilities of corporations. Anyhow, we are here to talk about critical race theory. First of all, how do you define critical race theory? Well, it's it's uh, basically a theory that says um, there's racism in American society. It's inbred. Um, it pretty much colors everything that goes on. And, you know, it's, uh, it's a way of teaching mm-hmm. about American history and racism, discrimination, a little bit of slavery as well over a number of years. So it's part of the school's curriculum. And I think that's the controversial issue from my point of view, whether it should be or it shouldn't be. Now, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think we can't deny our past. Uh, There's a lot of discrimination that's occurred over the years, still exists. There's no question about it. I think we still have some of the same challenges we've had for quite a long time. Uh, The underfunding of schools in black and minority communities comes to mind. Still some discrimination in housing. Obviously, uh, you have to have your eyes shut to not realize there is with criminal justice, given what's happened in the last two or three years, we just had 
the decision in the George Floyd case. So, you know, I think the issue boils down to is America a racist country or is it just that it has racist policies that rear its ugly head from time to time? I think that's where the debate seems to come down. And where do you land in that debate? Uh, I'd be honest with you, I'm probably somewhere in between. I recognize that there still is racism. There still are people who are against uh, blacks and other minorities, quite frankly, simply because of the color of their skin. But on the other hand, I do recognize having been a product of the 1960s, there's been a lot of progress, not quickly enough, no doubt about it. And we need to move more quickly, especially given our past history. The last two years have been very troubling, I think, for all Americans with the number of blacks shot in the street with no reason. And we have to come to grips with this start a dialogue, a meaningful dialogue between all sides. And unfortunately, I don't see that happening right now. I just see a divisive country. Now, the right has uh, suddenly come up with the, the meme, the, the CRT meme, the critical race theory meme. Uh, was there some staunch change in what was being taught from K to 12 as well as in advanced academia? Was there any major shift or change that necessitated some concern about uh, we are going through a new paradigm in which CRT is being taught? and in which uh, it, it, is, it is designed to make uh, white people feel less than good people? I think it's always been taught in colleges and universities. It's nothing new in that regard. The question is whether it should be taught in K through 12. That's where the controversy arises. Should kid, children that young uh, be taught that America is a racist country? And some say, no, why, you know, why make them feel badly about American history at that young age? They're very impressionable. Others say, yes, it's part of our history and it should be taught. But I think in the current environment, as you pointed out at the beginning of the interview, um, the rage of the country is some parent groups getting very upset about the fact that it's now part of the curriculum or proposed to be part of the curriculum of K through 12. We had the incident in uh, Loudoun County, Virginia, where parents got very, very vocal at a school board meeting because they want to make it part of the curriculum. And that's happening more and more in schools. So I think that's the change, the teaching of CRT earlier when um, children are younger than we have done in the past. Now, I want to I want to get more specific on that in the if we take a look at how often this is mentioned on TV in mostly right wing media, et cetera. Um, was there really some major change in high, in K through 12 curricula that actually said we are going to start teaching CRT in these schools? I, I am even in, in Virginia, it seemed to me like it wasn't. CRT that was being taught just true history, right? I mean, in which there, or it's different. I think CRT has to do with the systemic 
nature of racism in the country and how it infiltrates from uh, from our criminal justice system to our economic system, et cetera. While I believe in in K through 12, we're just learning the different facets of 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 our country's history. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, I think you're right. And I think those who do not want CRT taught in K through 12 say at least some of them do. Some of them may deny that it should be taught at all. That, yeah, let's teach it as part of American history. It's one element, but it's not important enough to have a major module, major segment on American history. That's what the uh, those who don't want it taught say pretty much, although there are some that don't want it taught at all. Even as part of American history, they'd like it to be erased from the consciousness of young people because they argue things have changed sufficiently to do that. I don't agree with that, but I think that's the argument. I think it does have to be taught. Call it what you will. Call it critical race theory. Call it systemic discrimination. It has to be taught. And I think the sooner the better. The problem is if you don't teach it in K through 12, these kids come to college and they're not sensitized to what's been going on. It makes it more difficult as a college professor for many years when youngsters come to our college and they haven't been exposed to the basics, whether it's mathematics or economics or whatever. It makes it more difficult to teach it in college because they're taught something different or it's been ignored in their early education. And what college is supposed to do is build on a foundation of what's taught in the earlier years. So that's my problem with it. We can't just, uh, you know, wash it away as if it didn't exist, especially with all the challenges we've had in the last few years. It makes it imperative, even more so, that it be taught. Now, his, the idea behind history many times is to ensure as well that we don't repeat the, the past mistakes that we've made. And uh, my, my concern is here that is that we don't have enough people speaking up to that effect and that if we don't if, if our kids believe the fallacy that we were magnanimous in our formation, that somehow, uh, you know, the, 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 first of all, they don't understand why, why certain communities are in the state that they're in. Example is uh the, the, the minuscule growth, let's see, in communities of color, the non-existent growth, let's see, in native communities are generally based on the lack of investment that had occurred through this country's inception. I mean, and that was all based on who these people were. I mean, uh, if people don't know the truth, they would actually they can actually be co-opted to believe in that there's something genetically wrong with these other people, why they are the ones who are underperformers as opposed to knowing that it's externalities that cause that. Your thought on that? No, I agree with that. I agree with what you have said. Um, the impression that sometimes left is it's the minorities who have created their own problem. Right. They haven't gotten together. They haven't uh, advanced enough, whether it's educationally or what have you, rather than looking at the systems. And I agree with you, there's not been enough investment in those areas, uh, the underfunding of schools is a tragedy and nothing. Look, we've been talking about this since the 60s. So we are talking about 50, 60 years. It seems as though we just kicked the ball down the road, you know, kick the can down the road. Nothing happens. A lot of talk about it. 
but for whatever reason, there has been no significant change in the issues that face black and minority communities. And it's, you know, possibly getting worse. I am a little hopeful with the change of presidential administrations will make some progress the last four years under President Trump obviously have been very troubling in that regard. And we have to uh, recover, so to speak, from that. And it is important that social programs be putting at the front. We put at the front of our priorities, not something we talk about and never do anything about, because that's the future of this country, especially with more minority groups. Uh, immigrants and others coming into the country. We should be a welcoming country, but we should also provide the resources, the education, the social services, political fairness in our system to make that happen. So we we want people to come here, just as the immigrants came, uh, you know, two hundred and so years ago. And um, it, we we have to do this on multi levels, and I don't see it happening. Economically, there has to be more investment in black and minority communities. Um, Call it what you will, uh, economic development zones. It needs to be done. And the key is it needs to be a priority. We have so much wealth in this country. Question is, how are we spending it? Now, my theory is that the vast majority of people are good. And that when the vast majority of people, when informed, uh, they don't necessarily have, uh, take on, you know, personally speaking, I don't want uh, I, I don't think anyone needs to feel guilt uh, of what their ancestors did. I think they have to be cognizant of the benefits that they have in, that they have engendered from what their ancestors did and also be willing going forward to mitigate for those issues that have occurred. That's my thought. And I think decent people actually think that way. My theory is, however, that there is a class in this uh, country. And I think this this particular class is a pathological class that actually believes that uh, if we were all to get together, if we were all to see things as they really are and become and, and, and allowed our human side to come out, that the divisions, that the uh, the the disparities that occur uh, would cause that small class in power its power. I think it is more than I don't. I think it has a lot to do with the economics of the few. And I, I've always wanted to have somebody that that writes like you do. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree with what you're saying, and it, it is something that we have to do something about systemically. And I don't know if people should fear the results of that. I don't myself. And I do believe what you said about most people are good people, but we have to have the leaders. I always contend that when I talk about business ethics, you mentioned it earlier, social responsibility. We talk about the tone at the top, the ethical tone at the top. And if the leaders aren't ethical, if they don't set a good role example, role model, it doesn't really help people to develop in their thought process. And that's what we're facing in Congress all too much, too often, I believe. The other point I'd like to make, you made an interesting point. I visited Germany a lot and I've talked to Germans. We used to have exchange programs in another university. They're quite open and above board and honest 
about their Nazi past. They recognize it. They almost want to celebrate it so their youngsters don't forget about it. There are all sorts of monuments to uh, Jews and other groups that were in, got involved in the Holocaust. And uh, we seem to want to sweep it under the rug, whereas they want to discuss it openly. And I think it's a great model, the German model. Look how much they've developed over the years. And they're very sensitive uh, people to that today. They're sensitive to minority groups. They were welcoming to the immigrants uh, back when that became quite common from the Middle East and so on. Yeah, well, I, like I like I said, uh, Doctor, I really think it has to do, believe it or not, everything in in America. My thoughts are it has to do with green, and the the idea that we won't be able to control people by having them be pitted against each other, as opposed to looking to where a lot of our problems are. I think may be partially the issue. Now we're uh, running up on some time here, so what I'd like to ask you is, I and it's the last question I always ask: What should I have asked you? that I didn't, what would you like to tell our audience that, that to get out there right now? Well, in my own writings and blogs that you mentioned, I like to link the teaching of critical race theory to the cancel culture. Because if, if you come out against the critical right, uh, race theory, then you could be canceled by the community, uh, ostracized from your community, and we have to realize this is all part of one problem. I put everything under the umbrella of the cancel culture, whether it's critical race theory, um, pro political correctness, uh, the thought police, and I could probably go on, wokeism. It all comes under the cancel culture. So in my mind, we have to deal with the bigger problem of the cancel culture. And whether this is good or this is bad, and uh, how it will affect America in the future. So I try to do that in my blogs to make people aware of the links and all of these theories. So that would be the main thing I'd like to add to our discussion. Well, Dr. Steve Mintz, thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. I think you've brought a whole lot of enlightenment. And I think you're right. It's important for us to uh, take, a, take a look at the cancel culture and how it actually affects dialogue, how it also affects the ability. The, the, I, I, act, I believe people have to have the ability to fail, to be wrong, and then be enlightened and not have to worry about uh, being canceled, if you will, because again, that shuts down discourse, in my humble opinion. Uh, even though that was your last question, I want your thought on that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We have to have open dialogue, free speech. And I agree with you on that thought. Yeah, I mean, I know in my own life, I've made mistakes. Um, and I would hate to be defined by my worst act. I mean, who among us haven't made mistakes? The key is whether I admit my mistakes. I show true remorse and I try to reform myself based on dialogue and civility, which has gone in society as well. To me, that is the key rather than canceling somebody because 20, 30 years ago, they may have said something um, stupid, ill-informed. What, is they, what have they done in their life for the last 20, 30 years? And what is the content of their character? That's what it all comes down to for me.
Dr. Steve Mintz, PhD, Professor Discussing Ethics, CRT. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Thank you for having me. Once again, remember, you can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right or on YouTube Live at politicsunright.com slash YouTube. That is politicsunright.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis, at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-I-E-S. Please don't forget, folks, we're in Fun Drive, so go ahead and call us up, 713-526-5738 for the books. As I see it, Class Warfare, the only resort to right-wing doom, a contribution of $120. It's worth it. How to talk to your right-wing relatives, friends, and neighbors, a contribution, $120. How to Make America Utopia Take Away the Economy from Those Who Rigged It, a Pledge, $120. Any two books, $200. Any three books, $250. But of course, you can call 713-526-5738 or go to kpft.org and give us whatever you can to support this great radio station. Folks, again, please remember to keep your community radio station in your mind, KPFT in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. 90.1 FM, Houston, or listen at kpft.org. Keep us on air by donating. Keep us on air by being a part of the family. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right. And you know how I end this, baby. I am what? Out. Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage.